So this is it. We're here, it's Christmas Eve morning. And this is the one time of the year when you're likely to run into family, friends, people that you haven't seen in a long time, sometimes even maybe years, and you're finally all getting together for Christmas. And you're going to encounter a, a grandparent, a cousin, an aunt, an uncle, a longtime family friend who has frozen you in their head at a particular time in your life, at a particular age. It's likely going to be from when you were a child. To them, you're just a bigger version of being seven or eight or 12. You've graduated high school, you've graduated college, you shave, right? You have a degree, you're into your career, you might even be married and have kids of your own. You own a house, you pay bills like a responsible adult, but they've still captured you in this moment of time in which you listen to a particular boy band or you are wearing your hair weird, or you are into this really uh, uh, distinct hobby that you had at a particular time. Really doesn't matter why they froze you there. It's their way of connecting with you. It's their favored memory of you. It's how they feel closest to you is by trapping you in that moment of time. We actually do that in Christianity. We sort of lock um, the, uh, the story of Christ into a few distinct moments. We capture Christ at a time when he's least threatening to us, when he's most palatable to us, when he's most approachable to us. I mean, the whole world doesn't feel threatened by celebrating the Christmas story. I mean, that's what all of it is, really. I know there's people who think there's a, some war on Christmas. Take a look around. I mean, every sale is uh, 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 around this season and every decoration. That's all for Jesus. That's all for this season of celebrating his birth. It's the most non-threatening version of Jesus that we have. And in Christianity and outside of Christianity, we can freeze people and we can even do that with God. Capture him at a moment in our mind when we get to know him to a certain point. That's the luxury of religion. It's Christianity allows us to get to know Jesus up to a certain point just to get sort of the benefits that we want from that relationship without going too deep into it and maybe get some of the uncomfortable things that come from a relationship. It's, it's kind of like, do you remember in high school when... There was a rumor floating around and everybody was talking about the big party, the huge party that someone was hosting. Their parents were out of town and it was the popular high school senior and he was gonna have this massive rager at his house and everyone was talking, everybody was out, are you going, are you going, are you going? And you started considering, how do I get to go to this party? I don't really even know this person. But then you start to think, but I know people who know people who know this person. So it's practically like I know them. 
And so when I'm at the party and somebody goes, oh, you're friends with Bradley? And you go, yeah, it's, I mean, we're like best friends. Obviously, I'm here at the party, right? Because we all love showing up for the party. We all love the connection. We all love being peripherally related to that person. But the reality is, in religion, we've made Jesus the high school senior having the rager, having the party, who we can safely follow him from a distance. We can know him to a point. But we don't let him get too close because then he begins to demand things of us. We want the most from him and require the least from us. We want a safe distance so he doesn't ask anything. When we don't need him, we want him far away. And when we do need him, we need him to appear like Aladdin popping out of a lamp. And that's what it looks like to be in religion. That's what it looks like to follow Jesus through Christianity. Because it allows us to know him through somebody else. It allows us to keep our distance, but to truly have relationship with him. Listen, to truly, truly be a follower of Christ, it means that you are then required to act like Christ. To love who Jesus loves. And to help like Jesus helped. And to live like Jesus. That's what a follower of Christ does. You know, the Bible uses the word disciple, and that just means a dedicated student. One who follows and learns and implements that into their own life. Who makes that person a, uh, a mentor that impacts the way they think, the way they talk, the way they behave. And I'll be... Full disclosure, to love who Jesus loves, that's hard. And to help at all like Jesus helped people, that's hard too. But then to live like Jesus lived, that feels unachievable, it feels impossible. But I'm going to give you three things today that you don't have to do. The good news is you're going to leave here with nothing to do. All, somebody's really excited. <laughs> I'm visiting and I thought this church was going to make me do a bunch of stuff. As a matter of fact, I'm going to tell you how to quit doing three things and virtually become a Christ follower, a dedicated, devoted, begin to live like Christ because you simply stop doing three things. That sounds pretty good. Grab your notes if you don't already have them. We have an app. You can download, and by the way, um, we are killing off our old app. You may have that old app, and uh, we have a new one that's already up and operational, so you might want to dump off your old one and go back on and look for us, and you'll be up to date because we are going to kill that off within a week. So, The easiest way to live like Jesus lived is to, number one, write this in your notes, quit making my mission more complicated than Jesus's. Quit making my mission more complicated than Jesus. So between this story that we're celebrating in this season, the birth of Jesus, and Jesus' first miracle when he was about 30 years old, he turned water into wine. That was the beginning. It's the mark of Jesus' public ministry. 
between those two time periods, for 30 years, we have almost nothing about Jesus, except one story when he's about 12 years old, and it's an awesome story, because Jesus' parents, like all Jews in that region, would travel back to Jerusalem once a year and celebrate the Passover, and that is from their time in captivity in Egypt when um, there was plagues uh, being visited upon Pharaoh and all of the Egyptians for holding the Jews as slaves, and uh, they, they, uh, a death angel was coming, and so they would paint lamb's blood over the door, and the angel would pass over that house. They were protected by God. So that's what Passover is. So they would come back, and they would typically travel in huge caravans, kind of convoys of families and friends. Whole, whole communities would come together. So they would be mixed up and traveling together, and the friends and the boys and all the girls would be hanging out, and the teenagers would be together getting into mischief as they made this long journey to Jerusalem and then back to their hometown. So that's what happened. They celebrate Passover, and they begin to leave, and they get gone, and they realize Jesus isn't with them. And so that's where we pick up in this story in Luke chapter 2. Everyone who heard Jesus was very surprised. So his parents had come back after a day realized he wasn't with them. And I'm not saying they were bad parents, but if it takes you a day to know your kid's not with you, any hooski. So they come back, and it took them three more days searching in Jerusalem to find Jesus, and they find him at the temple among the religious leaders, the scholars, and the experts of Moses' law. That was scripture and the prophets and the, the poetic scripture. Everyone who had heard Jesus was very surprised. He understood so many things, and he could, and he could answer difficult questions. When his parents saw him there, they were also very surprised. Other translations will say amazed. And his mother said to him, my son, why have you done this to us? Your father and I have looked everywhere for you. We have had a lot of trouble in our mind. We've been worried sick, other translations will say. And Jesus answered them, I love this, you should not have needed to look for me. I must be doing what my father, capital F, wants me to do. You should have known that. But his parents did not understand what he was saying. So I love this story for so many reasons. But one of the reasons is that I was for about 18 years, I was a youth pastor. And I love that Jesus was a total middle schooler right here, acting like he knew more than his parents and talking to them like they were the dumbest people on earth, right? He's like, you didn't even need to look for me. Like, you should have known I was going to be here. I just figured that's the way Jesus talked, but maybe with more of a Jewish dialect. So... And Jesus kind of talks to them like, you, why, why, why would you, you, you didn't know that I had to be about my father's. So Mary and Joseph maybe understandably thought Jesus was talking about Joseph, but Jesus said, I had to be about my father's business. In this case, Jesus did know more than them. Jesus had told them that there's a purpose for me being here. There's a, there's a mission that I'm on. I love that even at the age of 12, he had clarity. And what I love even more is that he understood what his mission was because he understood what the word of God said. Jesus had studied it. Jesus was talking about it. Jesus was growing in it. Jesus was developing his sensitivity to the voice of God in his own life. And he was already beginning to respond to that mission in his life. Listen how Jesus talks about his mission 18 years later. He's now about 30 years old. 
Luke 4, 16 through 21. By the way, this is all the same book that has this Christmas story in it. Jesus traveled to Nazareth where he had grown up. On the Sabbath day, which was Saturday then, he went to the synagogue as he always did, and he stood up to read scripture. And the book of Isaiah the prophet was given to him uh, that had been written hundreds and hundreds of years before Jesus. And he opened up the book and found the place where this is written. Jesus chose where to read from. And the Lord has put his spirit in me. That's Holy Spirit, by the way, when it's capitalized. Because he has appointed me to tell the good news to the poor. He has sent me to tell the captives they're free and to tell the blind that they can see. God sent me to free those who have been treated unfairly and to announce the time when the Lord will show his kindness. Jesus closed the book, gave it back to the assistant and sat down. Everyone in the synagogue and the temple was watching Jesus closely and he began to say to them, while you read these words just now, they were coming true. In other words, the prophet Isaiah and who he said this about, that is me. And Jesus in that moment declared to a circle of Jewish experts and all the crowd who stood and listened that my, Jesus could have read, of all the things Jesus could have read, of all the scriptures Jesus could have picked, of all the things Jesus could have talked about in that moment and declared himself to be in their lives. He could have been judge, he could have been executioner, he could have been the wrath of God, he could have been the firm hand of judgment in their life and Jesus instead picked the place where he read aloud and said, God has prepared me for this purpose to reach out to those who are marginalized, those who are poor, those who are mistreated, those who need to hear good news. That's my whole purpose. That's my whole reason for being here is to represent God for who he really is instead of the rageful and wrathful God that religion has made him out to be. That is what Jesus says his purpose is. Again, in Luke 19.10, he says this, I, the son of man, came to look for people who are far away from God. Those who are in danger, uh, they are in danger and I've come here to save them. Then again in Luke 5, 31 through 32, I, the son of man, uh, Jesus heard about it and spoke up. Uh, he heard the religious leader saying, why does your teacher eat with such scum? And Jesus heard about it and spoke up and he said, who needs a doctor, the healthy or the sick? I'm here inviting outsiders, not insiders, an invitation to a changed life, change inside and out. Jesus said, I'm here for the marginalized. I'm here for the mistreated. I'm here for those that religion has rejected, that the rules and the, and the judgment and the condemnation of religion has made everyone feel like an outsider. And I'm here to tell you that God does not feel that way about them. I represent the voice of God. Number two is this, the easiest way to live like Jesus lived is to quit getting sidetracked by shiny things. So the National Safety Council reports that 1.6 million accidents in America, car accidents in America, happen annually and they're caused by, can you guess? Cell phones. If you said that, you were right. Listen to this, one in four accidents are the result of texting and driving. One in four. And that results in 400,000 injuries a year. Texting and driving is six times more likely to cause an accident than drunk driving. 
And this is unnerving. Answering a text takes away your attention for about five seconds. That's enough time to travel across a football field with your eyes closed. And the point I'm trying to make is that no one gets into the car with the anticipation or the intent of hurting themselves, of getting in an accident, or possibly even killing someone. They don't mean to do that. They just got distracted from the road in front of them. That's why when you and I set out on a mission to become true Christ followers, it's maybe a little bit understandable why we can get sidetracked by other things that detour us, that put us in the ditch, that cause pain in our own lives and somebody else's because we lost sight of that. Listen to this passage later in Luke, Luke 4, 5 through 8 says this, the devil taking him up, Jesus had gone into the desert to fast for 40 days and 40 nights in order to close in on intimacy with his father in order to prepare himself for a season of difficult ministry. The devil taking him up onto a high mountain showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And the devil said to him, I will give you all this power and their glory for it all has been delivered to me. In other words, I have been given all this by your father and I can give it to you if I want to. I give it to whomever I will. If you will then worship me, all will be yours. And Jesus answered him, get behind me, Satan, for it's written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Jesus had the opportunity to step outside of his mission, to step outside of his purpose, to step outside of the plan in front of him. And if I were Jesus, I might've chosen that because he knew that his mission ended in pain and suffering. This one, he becomes royalty, he becomes king, he gets to rule. And he has to tell Satan, get away from me because you're a distraction to me. Now, a little bit later, he's in a conversation with Peter, one of his disciples, who does something very, very similar to what Satan did. And that's offered Jesus a distraction, a way out of his pain and suffering. This is Matthew 16, 21 through 23. From then on, Jesus began to tell his disciples plainly that it was necessary for him to go to Jerusalem and that he would suffer many terrible things at the hands of the elders, the priests, the leading priests and the teachers of the religious law. He would be killed, but on the third day he would be raised from the dead. But Peter took him aside and began to reprimand him for saying such things. And G, uh, Peter said to him, heaven forbid, God forbid, this will never happen to you. I'll keep you from fulfilling your mission. And Jesus turned to Peter and said, get away from me, Satan. That must have been tough. You are a dangerous trap to me. You're seeing things from merely a human point of view and not from God's. And that's what happens. When we're following the path that God has put us on, there's a lot of human things that get in our way, that distract us, that make us want to do anything other than what God has put before us. Now I want to tell you, there's a lot of good things in your life that are the enemy of the best things of your life. There's a lot of shiny things in your life that are attractive and easy to look at. The question you have to ask yourself is, 
Is this a distraction from the best things, the highest things that God wants for me in my life? Third and finally is this, the easiest way to live like Jesus lived is to quit building God's kingdom with broken bricks. So a few months back, um, somebody from the Lincoln City Council uh, reached out to me and asked me if I would consider running for city council. It was a very kind gesture. And without even thinking about it, without a moment of hesitation, I quickly responded. I said, I'm honored that you would think of me. I'm very grateful to be considered somebody that you think is worthy of that position. However, I would be horrible in that role. My my campaign slogan would be, Chris Young for city council, you definitely shouldn't vote for me. That would be like on all my posters and billboards, right? And I want to tell you why I don't belong there. It's because I have limited time here on earth. I don't know how long, just like you have limited time and you don't know how long. And I have a limited amount of resources and talents and creativity and energy on which to spend on things that have any relative value at all. And I have to make that choice of what's most valuable. How will I use the limited time and the limited gifts and abilities that I have and the limited resources that I have and the limited level of influence that all of us have? How will I use that influence? And I have to ask this question, is that best spent on the issues that people say are important, the political agendas that people are so passionate about and can give really eloquent speeches on and appear on the news and persuade us all to think that that is the right thing to do for us as a country or a state or a city? Do I use my limited abilities to help build the kingdoms of men? Or do I help build the kingdom of God, something that's bigger than me, that lasts beyond me, and that actually will impact somebody's life in a genuinely meaningful way? I have to ask myself if an issue or a political position or urgent circumstance or a pressing problem is more important than telling people that there is a God who created them, who loves them desperately, who sent his son into the world to help us understand how truly grace-filled and merciful and loving and kind God is. And that their sin that once separated them, their missing the mark that once separated them, they no longer have to worry about because Christ abolished the consequence, the penalty of sin. I've made a choice to advocate for that message alone in my life. And I can't carry the message of both men's kingdoms and God's kingdom at the same time. I have to remember there's simply nothing more important than the kingdom of God. And by the way, it's not the kingdom of heaven that I'm referring to. Jesus himself said, our father who's in heaven, praise be to your name, your kingdom come to here, the earth, just like it is in heaven. You see, the reason that heaven feels so attractive to us is because this, what we're living in, seems so unattractive to us at times. 
We want to escape this, but can I tell you that it was never meant to be this broken. And when we pick up the broken bricks of men, we will never build the kingdom of God. And so we've got to stop going to politicians and political systems and leaders of this world and its processes and its chaos and expect godly things to come from it. That was a place where so many more people should have responded. And just because your family or friends are here doesn't mean you can't act like I'm right, which I, of course, am. Jesus said this in Matthew 20, 25 through 28. So Jesus called the disciples together. Let me pause right here. This is a great story because the disciples were thinking about Jesus as a worldly leader and in kingdoms, which they were familiar with, right? The Roman kingdom, the Roman empire, and, and all of the things they had ever known were kings, kings and rulers. And two of the disciples had gotten into arguments with the rest, they were brothers and they wanted to be seated at Jesus's right hand when he came into his power, right? That is the hand of the king. You maybe heard that expression before. That is the one who gives dictates and rules on behalf of the king. And they wanted that seat. And they have actually had their mom go to Jesus and ask. These were grown men, by the way. Which then made the other 10 disciples really, really mad. So Jesus called the disciples together and he said, do you want the kingdom? capital K, kingdom of God, run like the Romans run their kingdom? Is that what you're going for? The rulers have great power over the people, but God the Father doesn't play by Roman rules. This is the kingdom's, kingdom of God's logic. Whoever wants to become great must first make himself a servant. You think anyone in political office right now is there to serve? It was rhetorical, but I hope, I'm glad you agreed that no is the answer. Because if you took away the money and the perks and the privileges and the benefits, do you think it even would stay in office? No, of course not. But a servant will. Whoever wants to be first must bind himself as a slave. Just as the Son of Man, Jesus, did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as the ransom for many. Jesus said, I gave up my rights. I gave up my ability to boss people around. I gave up my ability to rule over people willingly so that I could serve them. That's the kingdom's logic. And then he says this, John 18, 35 through 37. Jesus said, my kingdom does not belong to this world. If it did, this is when he's standing before Pilate and he's getting ready to be judged and lose his life. He has the opportunity to defend himself. Pilate's looking for a way out. He says, are you a king? Jesus said, my kingdom does not belong to this world. If it did, my disciples would have fought for me. They would have fought so that the Jewish leaders could not take hold of me. No, my kingdom belongs to another place. And then Pilate said to him, so that means you really are a king? He kept referring to a kingdom. And Jesus answered, you've said that I'm a king. Those are your words. I was born for this reason. I came into the world to tell the people the truth about God. Everyone who believes the truth listens to my message. Jesus said, my whole purpose for coming is to let people know who God really is. That's my kingdom's purpose. It isn't to rule or lord over anyone. 
If your mission in Christianity, if your mission in religion, if your mission as a follower of Christ is anything other than trying to show people who God really is, not ruling over them, not commanding change in their life, not requiring them to be different so they can receive our acceptance and our love, not telling them how wrong they are for the things that they're doing. God could have done all of that. But John 3.17 says, he did not come into this world to condemn this world, but to save this world. He could have. He had the authority and the righteousness to do that, but he did not. And if our mission, if our purpose, if our living as Christ followers looks anything different than that, can I remind you of why we are celebrating this season, why we sit here today? This is a passage maybe you expected to hear at the beginning of the message. This is the beginning of Luke, Luke 2. 8 through 14. That night, some shepherds were in the fields outside the village, guarding their flocks of sheep. Suddenly, an angel appeared among them, and the landscape shone bright with the glory of the Lord. And they were badly frightened. Isn't that interesting that even something holy can frighten people? But listen to how the angels leave their fear. Don't be afraid. I bring you the most joyful news ever announced, and it is for everyone. The Savior, yes, the Messiah, the Lord, has been born tonight in Bethlehem. How will you recognize him? You'll find a baby wrapped in a blanket lying in a manger. Suddenly, the angel was joined by a host of others, the armies of heaven praising God. Glory to God in the highest heaven, they sang, and peace on earth for all those pleasing him who have the favor of God, is what other translations say. So the very first introduction of Jesus on the planet is to lowly shepherds, the marginalized, the forgotten, the ones who sleep out in the dirty fields at night, the lowest on the totem pole of social structure, and the angels appear to them and say, there's some really good news for everybody. Why is it when Christians land on the scene, nobody thinks there's good news coming? Why is it that when Christians speak, that when some pastor appears on a news interview roundtable discussion, they're there to judge and condemn and make another black eye on the face of Christ because of how poorly they represent him. I don't think we can redeem Christianity. I think it's a lost cause. I think it's gotten away from us. I think it has so many more people who are following the religion and have forgotten how to follow Christ that I'm telling you, I think it's better to start over. Like 2,000 years ago when they were in this lonely village and people one by one began to decide this is the Messiah, this is the Savior, and I will watch and follow and do what he does. 
And that's how Christianity started 2,000 years ago, is person by person began to individually make a choice. I'm going to follow him, not because they're doing it, not because it's a worldwide movement. I'm going to do it because I've seen what I need to see and I've heard what I need to hear. And that's what brings us here. I mean, it's not night, but imagine us outside in that, that open air environment where there lays Jesus and you have to decide in that moment, did I just make a huge mistake? And do I look like an idiot? Because I believe that this is the very son of God, that this is God in flesh. That's what we all decide here today in this moment. If we could have someone from the team grab the table. In just a moment, I'm going to have you stand up and light your candles, not yet. And we're going to begin to sing. I usually travel with a roadie. He was sick today. Sometimes I think when we visit this time of the year, The songs and the celebration, the decorations, the traditions, they sort of lose their um, potency. They lose their ability to impact us. I mean, think about the kids in the room and in the children's ministry. I've lost my... <laughs> Emily, can you see my monitor plug? Yeah, it's on your... Yeah, it's... <laughs> I don't, I don't need a harassment charge. I just needed uh, to know where it was. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> and this is one of those songs that is um, done over and over and really beautifully by a lot of people. Um, but I don't know that we've ever stopped and really um, refocused ourselves on the intent and the worshipfulness of this really incredible seasonal song. And so I want us, before we stand and do anything else, I want us to just be in the moment. You can stay seated. And just be here in this song. Really focus on what you're singing. Um, can you give me more of him in my monitor? Silent night, holy night, all is calm, all is bright. Oh 
think about the meaning of being a light in a dark place. You're going to go see family and friends tonight, tomorrow, maybe over the next week and those who arrive late. And I want you to know there's a darkness in everyone's life. Even those who might know Christ, there's a hurt, there's a rejection, there's a betrayal, there's a loss. We've had two really painful losses in the church in the last couple weeks. Two people that were beloved and adored, and that's hard. You might have someone in your life that you just lost, and there's a darkness. And I gotta tell you that cliches and quoting scripture and emailing them my message is maybe not the best response but bringing the light the love the joy the peace the hope of christ into their life by just being jesus to them is the way to bring everything that they need to light their world let's sing this Son of God, Son of God, love's pure light, radiant beams from thy holy face, with the dawn of
just one last question before we sort of turn these candles off. There's a pretty good possibility that there's a large handful of people who aren't in a relationship at all with Christ. I don't want to know if you're a Christian. I hope you're not. I want to see you become a Christ follower, someone who chooses, who learns, who accepts, who follows, who adapts and adopts the message of Christ, the hope of Christ, the grace of Christ, and the gift of life that Christ gives. I mean, I want you part of this community, a community of other people fighting in this world to live an undistracted, life of being a Christ follower. And if that's you, I want us to sing this song one more time. And in that, maybe you just whisper a prayer in your own heart to him to say, I believe in you, but help me with my unbelief. I want to follow you, but help me where I'm distracted. I want to live the life that you created me for. Help me overcome the distraction, the sin, which sin just means to be off the mark. Listen, if there's an enemy game plan for your life, it's simply to keep you off the mark. He doesn't need to destroy your life. He just needs to keep you off the mark. And so my prayer for you today is that you would say yes to beginning an adventure, a journey of discovering and following Christ. And you don't need me to do that. You don't need a church to do that. You just need to do it right there where you're standing. Whisper that prayer to him. The Bible says if you'll knock, or he knocks at the door of your heart, and if you'll answer him, if you'll open up to him, it says he will come and reside in you, abide in you. He's not leaving you. Amen. I'm on melody, or I'm harmony. Holy night found it. All is calm. All is bright round yon virgin. Round yon virgin, mother and child. Holy infant. Holy infant, so tender. that to him. You don't need to come up and introduce yourself or go to a class or anything. But I do want to invite you to take a gift from us. Over on my right, your left, 
is a little thing we called I Raise My Hand booth. And then these really cool, they're called filament Bibles. And you use them with an app and it just brings the Bible to life. And it's a really easy to read translation. And I want you to just start in the book of Matthew. I'll tell chapter one's a little tough because it's a lineage, but there's a purpose to that. And just read, just read about Jesus, discover who he is, listen to his teaching and begin to fall in love with him all on your own. But take that gift from us. There's, we want nothing in return from it. And um, begin that journey. And then let us know if there's anything we can do to help. And for everyone else, be the kind of light that somebody wants to follow to Jesus. Not a light of interrogation, not a light of exposure, not a light of, uh, a light of revealing wrongdoing, but a light that points to Jesus. Father, help us be that this Christmas season. In your name we pray, amen. Be back here next week for Jammy Jam. These are not gifts, by the way. They are on loan to you. When you walk out, you can hand them back to the usher at the door. And um, if you're a guest here, don't worry about it. We're going to stack chairs around you. Everyone who's part of Summit, stack three chairs. No youth tonight. God bless you guys. Merry Christmas. Hot chocolate and cookies and maybe even some donuts left in the lobby. See you next week for Jammy Jam and a great message. <laughs>